Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Kevin Gostela, who has spent the last decade reporting on Assange, WikiLeaks, and the wider war on whistleblowers. He is co-founder and managing editor of Shadowproof, an independent news outlet focused on systemic abuses of power in business and government, and the curator of the Dissenter newsletter. Gostela also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. His work has appeared in outlets such as The Nation, Salon, Common Dreams, and Truthout. And he has been a featured guest on Democracy Now!, The Real News Network, Counterspin, and Al Jazeera English. He previously co-authored Truth and Consequences, The U.S. vs. Private Manning, published in 2012, co-authored with Greg Mitchell. His latest book has just been published, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. I welcome Kevin Gostela to Savage Minds. I was very excited to read your manuscript in terms of this kind of wider debate that we see that even Tucker Carlson has waded into. And, you know, Tucker Carlson is someone who 20 years ago, I could not stand him. He is one of the saner voices in legacy media today, and he's coming out swigging at the way that legacy media is programming people. And no better way can you see this than the irony of The Guardian, which took copious resources from Julian Assange, cashed in on his work, but barely do you see a beep about him in their publication. A lot of our listeners are very invested in the freedom of the press and have been following ardently what has gone on with WikiLeaks, both Assange's reporting and then his arrest and his being essentially kidnapped. What a lot of our listeners have constantly asked about, and it's a bit of this enigma, how is it that this is the biggest media story out there, the hijacking and sequestration of a journalist who uncovered war crimes that largely our country and a few others committed and is being held for ransom? How did this come to be? The answer is a very complex one, but it's also fairly straightforward because while there are so many different angles from which we could approach the case against Julian Assange, what is evident is that the United States government run by, you know, I, Tucker Carlson would call them the deep state, uh, the a uh, word that I favor right now comes from an author named Matthew Connolly, who just wrote worked on this really fantastic study of classified information. And he published this book called The Declassification Engine after working for close to a decade on this, um, assessing why there are certain information that never gets released, what's considered secret and top secret. Is there even any rhyme or reason to the application of our classification system to records that are supposed to be public. And he calls it the dark state. He calls it the dark state in particular um, as a term to say that these are the agencies and institutions that are basically implicated in the covering up of so much that happens in our name so that they don't have to take responsibility for what has happened when there's scandals, when there's corruption, when there's something that goes wrong that they don't want us to know about, uh, when they fail to respond to threats, when they create their own global threats, 
so however you want to view it, these opaque group of agencies or shadow government or what have you were viscerally angry to see Julian Assange and WikiLeaks expose them. And that goes all the way back now 12, 13 years when we're talking about the documents in this case. Um, and they involve the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. They involve the way in which U.S. diplomats conduct their work uh, when they are meeting with their partners in countries all over. And uh, it involves the hundreds upon hundreds of, now we can say very clearly and convincingly without debate, innocent people who were rounded up and brought to the military prison on Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And these documents, along with also there's a video, although Julian Assange is not charged with this in this case, in this particular case, he released this very vivid video called the that they called the collateral murder video that showed us what war was in Iraq, what was happening, the way in which the, the we were told all about these rules of engagement when it came to launching missiles and and conducting these attacks. And you have these soldiers who are very eager and giddy and happy to be attacking. As it turns out in this video, we see Reuters journalists or Reuters photographers that are being uh, shot down. And then we have a van that comes and tries to rescue them. In, and this is in Baghdad in 2007. And as they're being rescued, the soldiers are begging, begging their superior officer to give them the permission to also attack the van that is rescuing the wounded. So this is war. And they wanted to distract from it. And they did so by attacking WikiLeaks, by seeking to discredit them, by arguing that they were not engaged in journalism, that these were something, these were people that were something far more sinister than your average journalist, that they engage in hacking or that they're trying to steal government documents rather than just publish them for uh, a collective benefit, to a way of improving our knowledge of government and that they, uh, you know, needed to be responded to aggressively by the uh, these institutions had to take measures in order to protect the government from future, uh, as they would have described. I don't use their terminology, but they would say we need to protect ourselves against future document dumps. And so this case at the root of it is, in my mind, all about vengeance. And uh, it developed into that, particularly under President Donald Trump, through the figure of CIA director Mike Pompeo. But isn't there a precursor to this within the Obama administration as well? No? To some degree, but I give them credit for not indicting Julian Assange. I think you have to because President Obama has the distinction, and I don't let him off the hook in the book if that's what is intimated in your question, but he prosecuted more whistleblowers than all previous presidents combined through this Espionage Act which we talk a little bit about. It's an over 100-year law. It was always designed against dissenters. And I think the, cru the crucial point to make here is that our government, at least, if we stick to the last century, maybe 110, 120 years, the U.S. government has always been insecure when it came to Americans expressing their viewpoints about whether the United States should be involved in a war, which is to say that when our government 
gets it in their heads that they are going to pursue an intervention, they will use the tools available in government to coerce and intimidate and harass and force citizens into supporting a war effort. Um, and also that could take the form of lies. It can take the form of manipulation, of making it seem like we were attacked, that there was a provocation, and uh, there's no choice but to go to war and respond to it. And that extends back to World War One because there was a organized resistance to the U.S. under Woodrow Wilson being in World War One and not joining into that effort and, and recognizing that that was an obstacle, that there were dissidents that were organizing against it. Woodrow Wilson passed these sedition laws and went after anti-war magazines, uh, went after particularly the black independent press that was involved in sharing um, information. Uh, this could be in the mail as well, like the Postal Service. They might try and uh, confiscate and go after people who were using the Postal Service to share the what they considered to be seditious material. Anti-American material might be how they would describe it. You know, these were these were communists. These were socialist groups. These were people who were uh, very militant left wing labor organizers. And eventually they were targeted and arrested and they were hit hard with the Espionage Act. And I make that point because there's a continuity. If you look through the history, we have examples of people who in our country were targeted for raising their voice against the war. Daniel Ellsberg is the quintessential example of the Espionage Act case. It's the way it is actually applied now is much like the way they applied it to him when he disclosed the Pentagon Papers to bring about the end of the Vietnam War in 1971. And then going forward to the Obama administration, most of these whistleblowers were individuals who had soured and no longer could get, could bring themselves to support the global war on terrorism, who questioned the surveillance apparatus, who questioned uh, the torture techniques that were being applied, who questioned the decision-making that was being made within the Justice Department to expand secret law, to develop a kill list, to pioneer drone warfare so that people could be extra judicially killed abroad without any chance of due process just to decide even though we weren't technically at war in some of these countries that the world is a battlefield so we could vaporize you from the skies and these people who were on board with the mission saw the september 11th attacks found that they wanted to be patriots and sign up for their country learned that that was not the way that our country operates that there were very very real issues that had to be exposed. And so then they took those risks and they were punished harshly. And that goes along with where we were when I talked about 1917. And then now it is extended onward to the Trump administration when Julian Assange is indicted in 2019. Okay. But he was arrested 11 years ago, correct? Well, no. So it depends on how you approach the case. So when you say arrested, 
which one? Because right, right. The holding up in the Ecuadorian embassy, I guess a lot of people consider that sort of the first move where he had to self-protect. And then there was a case, obviously the case of the claims made against him in air quotes, because that's another issue we can get to in a moment. But the idea that he was not a free agent to move around the world. Yeah. And that was recognized to provide some background by the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. They recognized that when he was in the Ecuador embassy, it was effectively like being in prison because he did not have freedom of movement. He was not able to access health care. In fact, his uh, his dental care became very, very poor. They could not get the machines into the embassy that were required to provide treatment. Um, there were other things related to his physical health that went neglected or which he did not address because he was unwilling to leave the embassy. And so, you know, the first the first arrest, though, he does turn himself in. So it's hard for me to not separate and dist- and make a distinction. But when there are these allegations that come out against him from two women of, of sexual misconduct, he goes he, he does turn himself in. Um, he he does. He's in the UK. He's not in Sweden, but he does. He does report. Um, well, actually, no, I believe he's in Sweden and he leaves Sweden and then he's in the UK and then they're trying to make him come back to Sweden. And while he's in the UK, he is complying. He is reporting to the authorities. He's going through the hearings. He has put on house arrest. He is not in confinement. So I do I do treat it differently, but I recognize it as being the same. I mean, they're, they're using law as a weapon against Julian Assange or using the legal system as a weapon. And Julian Assange um, eventually does seek political asylum under advisement from his team led by a very renowned human rights attorney, Michael Ratner, who was a mentor in Julian Assange's life, but also done really good, important human rights work for the Center for Constitutional Rights. And he determined that it was highly likely that if he went to Sweden, he would be extradited from Sweden to the United States to face the very charges that we are discussing right now, the indictments that are standing right now, the very reasons why he is in Belmarsh prison in London right now. And so he's in the Ecuador embassy until 2019 of April, when finally the Trump administration succeeds in their pressure campaign, or if you want me to be more specific, uh, the CIA and uh, Justice Department succeed in a pressure campaign to get, uh, and also we could maybe throw in the State Department because they're involved. Uh, Mike Pompeo makes a lateral move over to the State Department, and the State Department is carrying out a lot of the policies that the CIA would like the United States government to pursue. And so he is forced out finally after a lot of pressure on the Ecuador government to revoke his political asylum and uh, no longer treat him like a citizen, no longer extend the citizenship to Julian Assange that had protected him. And that means the British authorities are able to enter the Ecuador embassy and haul him out. And we have the very uh, vivid, stark footage of him with his unkempt hair. That was intentional. They took away his shaving kit and they wanted him to look like uh, a bum when he got dragged out 
of the embassy and they put him in a police van and they take him off to the uh, courts, um, take him off to this detention facility or this prison, which holds people who are accused of terrorism crimes and other violent offenses. And uh, that's where he's been. He's been denied bail. And that's 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 the arrest that I focus on because that was against his will. He didn't have any time to prepare for that. Unlike the one related to the sexual allegations, he did not get to set the terms for how he reported to the authorities. Well, right. Around the time of those allegations, I had a lot of women because I cover a lot of women's stories in my journalism, a lot of women saying, how can you get behind this? And I just said to them, I said, since when has the state ever cared about sexual assault? I said, even from the get go, this stinks. This really stinks. But then when you start and I explained to them because I investigated the stories, I said, when you start to dig into these stories, I don't want to take the punchline away from you, but all was not as legacy media had reported it. Was it, Kevin? Uh, Yeah. And, you know, it's my view that at this point, the only significance of the sexual allegations are that there were major due process violations in the way that it was handled. It was unfair to the women, if you believe that they are to be listened to and to have their day in court to bring their claims, because the fact of the matter is, that the Swedish prosecution authority was only considered in doing handling this case in a way that would basically um, alienate and violate the rights of the defendant as well, uh, which there are. You just every legal case, there are the rights of the accused and there are the rights of the accusers, and and you have to balance both of those. But in this one, it was clear that every step of the way, they were no, they were unwilling to take into account the fact that Julian Assange felt that there would be a risk to him if he came to Sweden. They never were willing to go through with questioning him in the embassy. He was never charged. He could have been questioned in the Ecuador embassy. There is a legal assistance treaty that would have allowed for them to send somebody. But in fact, we know based on emails that were exposed by Italian journalist Stefania Marizzi that, and this comes from her freedom of information request work, the lawsuits that she's pursued, that they were advising or saying that they were not going to, uh, they, they did not want Sweden to send anybody to the Ecuador embassy that was coming from the UK, that they were saying, you know, don't do that. And they were probably doing that on behalf of the United States, who did not want a resolution to this for the same reason why they you know are very i think comfortable with how long this has unfolded so far we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of julian assange being tossed from the embassy and dragged and put into prison and it could go on for another three or four years and so they did not want julian assange to get the resolution where the charges no longer hung over his head uh, and they did not want him to be exonerated as not an accused rape as, as somebody who was not guilty of committing sexual offenses. And so um, he never had the opportunity to be questioned. And, uh, and and that's and and that's where that stood. And and you saw that the Swedish prosecutors opened and closed and opened and closed and opened and closed the case. They basically were 
at the whim of whatever was happening in the United States with authorities. And so when it was valuable for it to be ongoing, then they would make sure it was back on the table that he could be prosecuted. Uh, But when it caught up with them, that they were engaged in something that was corrupt, then they were, then they recognized they were caught. uh, They would shut down the case. Uh, There is no case right now. Um, And so if anything really did happen, if you do care about the rights of women, which I think people should, and I think that's what you're saying is that you do. And in your show, you've covered it, this kind of thing that, you know, these women never got a chance to air out what happened. If something legitimately did go wrong, then they never were given their chance to be heard because there were geopolitics that infringed upon their right to due process. When you were investigating for your book, you looked through, as you just mentioned, the policies from various administrations, even as far back to the beginning of the 20th century. The Espionage Act is one of these keys into how Assange is being held. What differs between the case of Chelsea Manning and Assange, where Manning is now free, Assange is not, where Snowden, although a separate case entirely, but there are some crossovers, is in a similar position, although not in an embassy, he is sort of stuck for the time being in Russia. And I know you're coming down more on Trump than Obama. I'm very angry as a journalist with Obama because of the way that he targeted the freedom of information, the access for journalists to not only get that information, but to share that information. Could you sort of explain how these three cases are similar and then different in terms of both what went down during Obama's administration and then Trump's? Yeah, uh, although I'm sorry, I can't let it slide. I don't let Obama off the hook at all. I don't come down on Trump more than Barack Obama. In fact, the in the book, what I wrote makes it clear that without Obama, Trump would not have had the machinery to go after Julian Assange because what Barack Obama did while he was president is cast himself as the most transparent administration, cast his administration as the most transparent administration in the history of the United States, which was a lie and made a lot of what he was doing into this kind of a farce that journalists could see clearly. I mean, in fact, what was transparent is that he was not transparent and that he was refining a system of secrecy and he was blocking the release of torture photos. He was blocking the release of videos of Guantanamo prisoners being force-fed He was blocking the release of memos that described the secret law that had been developed and manufactured by his administration to justify having kill lists to go after people with uh, either drones or cruise missiles or whatever methods they wanted to use militarily and secretly. And he was perfecting the use of the Espionage Act, making it into something that was like an official Secrets Act, which is an important point to make in the course of answering your question, because we do not have a law in the United States that makes it a crime 
to publish classified information, which is what they do have in the United Kingdom. So the Justice Department has consciously been chipping away at certain rights that are supposed to exist, certain aspects of our First First Amendment rights, whether you're in the government working as an employee or a contractor, or whether you're a journalist, in order to make it easier for them to control the secrets that are in their control. And uh, so uh, you asked me if uh, you asked me about the difference between Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. And first, I just want to make sure that I make it clear that Julian Assange is a journalist. They do this thing a lot of times where they'll refer to him as a whistleblower. And yeah, uh, in the general sense, he's blowing the whistle on a lot of things that we need to know. But he was given information and it came from sources. And those sources are the whistleblowers. And those are the people who have that title. And that's important to this case because in order to pick apart why he shouldn't be prosecuted under the Espionage Act, you have to understand that he doesn't have certain elements. There's not there's certain elements missing that should protect him from prosecution. He doesn't have a security clearance. Um, he, he never signed a non-disclosure agreement. He is not a U.S. citizen is another thing that you know, we can get into. So why are you being charged under a U.S. law, the Espionage Act? He's from Australia. The difference, though, like why Chelsea Manning is free now and why Julian Assange is still in prison, because I think that's the core of your question, is that Ju- the, the Julian Assange um, is someone who the U.S. government, from Obama to people around Trump to people who are uh, working in the bureaucracies of our government, they all are convinced that he's a fugitive who has escaped justice and they are thirsty to bring him to the United States and put him on trial, whereas Chelsea Manning was punished. Um, And what they would tell you is that she was arrested. She went through a trial. She took responsibility for her crimes. Uh, This is how they would talk. This is not my language. I'm paraphrasing them. They would say that she took responsibility for her crimes and she did plead guilty to some offenses before there was a trial in 2013 and that she went through uh, six years in military custody. She was at Fort Leavenworth prison. It was a very difficult time for her. Uh, She attempted suicide at least a few times and the toll that it was taking on her was one in which as people spoke out for her, spoke out for her to have access to gender affirming healthcare in military, something in a military facility, something that was unprecedented for the Pentagon. Uh, She was able to win over some advocates, some that were in high places in the Obama administration. And Obama eventually saw that it was reasonable to show mercy to Chelsea because there had been punishment. So, I don't think there's a recognition here that Chelsea Manning is somehow a better and more honorable whistleblower and less of a violator of the Espionage Act than Julian Assange. There's instead a wielding of power of saying we have sufficiently punished Chelsea Manning. We are willing to let her go back to society now. But for Julian Assange, he has no he has never complied with our efforts to target him and bring him to the U S and punish him in our 
prisons and through our court system. And so until he does that, we will not relent from our pursuit of trying to bring Julian Assange to this country. Although that said, what was the initial sentence that was handed to Manning? It wasn't six years. No, but the reason it becomes abbreviated is because of the acceptance that the punishment had been severe and that it did not need it was not necessary to be the so the full sentence was 35 years in prison is rather extreme sentence and extreme in the sense that most people who get accused of these kinds of crimes involving if they're even crimes i mean we can discuss that but i don't know that some of this stuff is necessarily criminal if we're talking about information that's in the public interest I don't know that somebody should go to prison for this extensive amount of time. I don't think that that's the way it should be handled. If you want to fire someone for abusing their security clearance and their access, that's one thing. That's an administrative thing. But to ruin someone's life permanently and make them a felon, when you're convicted by the government of violating the Espionage Act, you have a record where you are a convicted felon for the rest of your life, which means you can't vote, you can't own a gun, you can't. Uh, it's harder to get jobs. There's all kinds of other things that you can't do as an individual because you've joined this class of people. And so, uh, she, you know, she uh, should probably have never been sentenced to 35 years. Most of the people who get accused of this get somewhere around five to 10 years. Um, if if that, you know, they some of them are lucky enough to hammer out plea agreements. Right. Well, when Bradley then Bradley Manning was sentenced and when this all started off, there seemed to be various playing fields out there. It was very clear from the very beginning that they wanted Julian Assange. It was almost like Manning was an afterthought. And now let's talk about the crimes here, because uh, you said that could be debatable. Well, some of the evidence that Assange published was most certainly crimes. In fact, I, I was in the U.S. military. One of the first lessons I received as a soldier in the U.S. Army was it went something like this. You must follow all the orders you're given unless you know that that order that you're being given is to commit an illegal act, right? And these were, in the 80s, the lessons learned from Vietnam. So that was one set of lessons that the post-Vietnam military was beginning to in, in, incur and to teach. Now, what Manning or Assange demonstrated by either being a whistleblower or a publisher was to show, well, the wedding party, right? I mean, that would be considered a, a crime of war, no? Yeah, no, there definitely... Within the revelations, uh, there were specific examples of what the small change of war. This is how war correspondent Patrick Coburn described it, you know, just showing people what happens on a daily basis in conflict zones. Why, if Manning revealed war crimes and was a whistleblower, this should be protected, no, under whistleblowing laws? Isn't that the whole point of whistleblowing laws or are military personnel in the U.S. not covered by those laws? So the problem is that the U.S. government doesn't recognize going to the press 
as being legitimate conduct for whistleblowing. Once you do that, you've exposed information. And uh, just to be clear here, everyone out there, I'm not I'm not saying you do, but something that people who get this all wrong do is they get hung up on the volume of information. Oh, it was hundreds of thousands. Oh, it was over a half oh, yes. a million. Yes, oh, yes, it yes. was nearly a, nearly a million documents. <laughs> That's what they said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just so people understand, the government does not charge people with 750,000 or a million documents ever. They selectively, and they did this in Chelsea's case, and they did it in, and they're doing it right now to Julian Assange. They selectively pick documents and they bring out let's say a dozen or so sensitive pieces of information that'll be the easiest route they believe for nailing the person that they are prosecuting they do not go to the trouble of bringing forward over a half million documents and they just don't do it for reasons of process they they don't recognize the media as being a part of what they say is the so-called proper channels that you can use to expose war crimes. Now, there really is not much of a system. There is something called the Military Whistleblower Protection Act. But I think if you're in the services that you would use those so-called processes made available to you at your own risk. And what people get really afraid of when they use these so-called proper channels is that they are exposing themselves to repercussions. And I uh, mean that you go to your superior officer and you tell them, well, you made the example of the unlawful order. So let's say, let's say, for example, that you go before the night raid to your superior officer and you say, I have intelligence that we're going to a home that is one where people live. Uh, these are artists. They're not involved in anything that involves terrorism. They're not trying to kill U.S. soldiers. We've got the wrong house. And the superior officer says, oh, no, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And then what will happen is you'll probably just be removed from the night raid and you won't be allowed to join the team and go because they no longer expect you to go along with what is going to end up probably being a massacre. And so and so that's the way they deal with it. And I think soldiers are afraid to expose themselves. And then when they get to the, the, the when they have the recognition, when they become recognized by their superior officers as someone who will challenge their orders, they are no longer seen as a team player in, to the chain of command. And so then they lose those professional opportunities and they might even be honorably discharged just so that the officers no longer have to deal with them in the military. And so that happens in the U.S. military, that could happen at the National Security Agency. It could happen in the CIA that you get frozen out, that you're no longer part of sensitive uh, or other uh, covert op operations that uh, you find that you used to have input, 
Suddenly you no longer have input because you have questioned the way that certain operations are being planned and carried out. And so that's why people go to the press. They go to the press because they recognize that those people who are involved in the proper channels are in the chain of command. Uh, They can then use what you tell them to cover up their wrongdoing. They can retaliate against you when you want to go to Congress. So some of these people might go to Congress. Some of these people might go to an inspector general and tell them that there needs to be an investigation. Well, sometimes those very people who are supposed to do oversight can become conspirators with those security agencies or those military branches in suppressing the efforts of the whistleblower by saying, oh, you know, we looked at this very closely. We do not think that it is actually as serious as you've made it out to be. We think you should just relax and uh, let it go because, uh, you, you know, you don't have all the facts. You don't see what we see. We see a bigger picture. You just have you just have this, you know, like they could say, well, you just have this one night raid operation in front of you. Um, this isn't what we're doing all of the time. I think you need to understand that this is part of a, a bigger operate. This is part of a bigger effort that we are undertaking. And, uh, and, and so then you are the problem. You become treated as the problem. The problem isn't what is being done. It's you for objecting. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. The way this went, though, is that Manning was acquitted of the most serious charge, which was basically aiding the enemy for giving secrets to WikiLeaks, as if WikiLeaks were the Soviet Union, which I found a bit funny. This whole process against Manning really flies in the face of democratic forms of expression because WikiLeaks is a publisher. Remember, you you said this earlier, but when this all kicked off, we were told about how many hundreds of thousands of documents of files were shared and how many thousands of soldiers' lives were put into danger. Remember that? And this was all about aiding the enemy. Wait, publishers are not enemies. Now, this is my question for you, because all this happened many years ago, even before the average person would understand that WikiLeaks, just like many online publications, are online publications. You know, that division that happened between analog and digital, that even though we've had digital publications since the advent of the internet, most people had simply never experienced them until well around social media time. A lot of people use the internet at work and then they went home and watched HBO. It wasn't that the internet was such an integral part of their lives 15 years ago as it is today. How much do you think of this might have ended more positively for Assange if all of this kicked off now? where people understand, remember the Dropbox and people were like, what's that? Like a lot of people didn't know what a Dropbox was. It sounded actually a bit criminal, right? It sounds, oh, a Dropbox, that's where the Russian spies are going to leave the box, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So a lot of this played upon creating a public element of fear around 
this Australian person who was set up to look, you said like a, a bum. Yes, they had him looking like a crazy person. They made sure he was frog marched across the cameras to look like someone who belonged in jail. That's a good question. And I, uh, you know, I appreciate the way that you framed it uh, because it is true that when you go back, uh, so like the people who are in the U.S. Senate and Congress don't have that great of a grasp of technology and they don't really understand the what we could call the networked fourth state uh, with media, but also just you know, the way that there's a whole network of social media platforms that we've seen on display descriptions of uh, of the Twitter files and and the way that those uh, are those processes are working. Um, and then also you've uh, got the surveillance the surveillance tools that Edward Snowden exposed from the NSA. Well, they don't really have that great of a grasp of you know how that's working and how they're wiretapping internet communications and they're just tremendously ignorant group of people um and so they are able to with their fear of what is happening now because because what what was said by president barack obama's security agency chiefs collectively was that okay so we have now seen that it is so easy for someone at any level of government especially like because remember chelsea was a private a very low level all source intelligence analyst anyone on any rung of the totem pole could put in a removable media like a usb thumb drive or they could stick in a cd-rom and they could download files and they could leave with it and that made everyone feel very vulnerable because they did not know what people were doing at any given time. So, you know, it was Chelsea who gave this material to WikiLeaks and that was for a good purpose. But just imagine anybody else could have been accessing the material to go sell it to somebody. Anybody could be accessing the material to go give it to, you know, criminal enterprises anywhere in the world that could use it for their benefit. Or simply leaving them in their garage, right? It could be Joe Biden. It could you could be taking them to just keep as something that you wanted in your own private collection. And, but that probably didn't keep them up as night uh, up at night as much as just the thought that anybody could come in and, and they don't have that problem anymore. As I write in the book, they developed an insider threat program, which is very much like a Stasi like total surveillance. Um, and if you want to, discuss the removal of free speech rights. It very much makes it difficult for people to, I think, um, act and uh, be whistleblowers because you know that you're going to have your actions put under a microscope daily if you are challenging what your office or your division and wherever you're working is doing. The rest of the answer is to say that, in, in my opinion, I I do think it would be as severe that there isn't much of a difference. The, 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 if WikiLeaks came along and it performed the same actions that it did back in 2010, 2011, that is to say, 
there's a lot that's happened in the last 10 years that we would sort of have to get out of the picture in order to so let's just also pretend for the ease of answering your question that Edward Snowden did not come forward, that we just haven't had an event where a massive amount of documents have been exposed. And that now, and that now we're, we, we've got that event, that event has just been basically delayed by a decade. And so people are more comfortable with technology. And then now WikiLeaks is publishing all this information, but I do think it would still be treated like, to use their hyperbole, uh, like a digital Pearl Harbor event, that they had to respond um, and they would have their task forces and they'd be investigating this information. They'd be preparing a crisis response. And I do think that they would be raising alarm and they would try to get people to turn against WikiLeaks just as much as they did a decade ago because what it's not really about technology, uh, it doesn't really matter how they do it. So whether they are printing it off like an analog in an analog manner, whether it, whether it's like what Daniel Ellsberg did because he had to go to a Xerox machine and make copies of this Pentagon Papers study that was thousands upon thousands of pages, and you uh, had to set and he sent it to like dozens of of locations. So that's a lot of paper and it takes a lot of time to compile and prepare to be sent. Uh, whether you do it like that and then they're freaked out because it was shared in that manner or whether you have the ability to very easily share a file of a half million to a million files. And uh, the way that WikiLeaks shared it with journalists, it was in an encrypted file and then those journalists would get a password and that way they could access that encrypted file, which they would go find on the internet. So whether they did it that way, whether it was submitted anonymously through the system or done in a more crude analog manner, they would still be very upset because what signals is that they have lost control of secrets. And that is the issue for the U S government is that every day it's about maintaining control of this universe of secrets in which they actually are incapable of controlling. What they are doing is trying to pursue an objective in which they will always fail because they do not know what they have in their possession. They do not know the extensive extensive amount of secrets. Uh, there are documents that are being mandatory. They're, they're classified every day. They're required to be classified. They're automatically classified. And nobody who works in government can grasp what is secret and what is not secret. And nobody can agree. And it also changes. So one day there might be a set of threats. The next day those threats shift. And then that information isn't as sensitive anymore. And they might be openly talking about it. They might be boasting about it. Like, for example, as I write in the book, I tell about an example. Uh, I, I recall an example where CIA director, and he was also the Pentagon chief, Leon Panetta, goes to an event. It's to honor SEAL Team 6 in their raid to kill Osama bin Laden. And he's got in the audience, and he knows the person's there, we believe, is a Hollywood filmmaker involved in making Zero Dark Thirty. And 
He's exposing the identities of people on the SEAL team who are still supposed to be living under protection because that's just what was extended to them by their role. And so he's outing people who were involved in the operation. He is effectively committing a crime, except he's never prosecuted for it. Um, And he's doing it as he lauds and celebrates the work that they did in killing bin Laden. And then, you know, maybe he didn't think those people were needed to be protected anymore and that they should have been publicly known to all of us. Uh, But the thing is that the, the universe of information is so vast that nobody can grasp it. And, and it doesn't necessarily have any rhyme or reason for the most part. That was why my question focused upon the digital aspect, because the sentences that were coming out of MSNBC and Fox News at the time were hundreds of thousands of files. And we all know, and we knew then, that you could shove a bunch of files on a small USB drive. And I think a lot of what happened around the hunt for both Manning and Assange was based on a lot of public support for this. I remember early on, there were people just outraged. But when you would ask them questions about why they were outraged, it became very clear that they were just parroting what they read in the media. They actually didn't really understand if laws were broken, first of all. It's sort of what happened during COVID where everyone became an immunologist overnight. Suddenly, back then, everyone was like an expert on if Manning broke laws or not without waiting for there to be an actual trial and a an evaluation by professionals who are experts in international law or the rules of warfare, what have you, to decide if laws were broken and who broke them, right? Because it seemed to me that, and this was way back when, you know, outlets like Democracy Now! were covering the war crimes that Manning and Assange had exposed, and then the right side of the aisle was covering the laws that they felt that these two men had broken. Yeah. So there was a divide between, is it the truth to information under our democracy that is sacred, or is it that we have to abide by these rules? And the right wasn't saying that there were no war crimes committed ever, but they were saying we need to abide by these rules. And these two individuals broke that chain of command, even though one wasn't an Australian and one was in the military. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I don't think that whether it be Republican or Democrat, that there was much appetite to investigate war crimes. And so all of the exposure of information put the Obama administration in this position where they were being uh, dragged into reassessing the plans for Iraq, the plans for Afghanistan. Uh, there were there was the re-raising of the issue of Guantanamo. Of course, Obama says he's going to close Guantanamo. Well, uh, he can't really do that because Republicans are not going to let him. Um, and then also as they resist, he's going to lose his interest in using his political capital to close the prison. So he moves more slowly um, and he starts to move more delicately when it comes to ending 
the detention of people. But in fact, uh, where one of the things that the Obama administration lost out uh, and and caved first when it came to Republican opposition was that they went, okay, you win. We'll stick to this military tribunal system that does not work. It is so dysfunctional. In fact, today, as we discuss, the people who were accused of 9-11 have still not received trials and are there at Guantanamo. And who knows if they'll ever be able to go through trials. But Eric Holder, as attorney general, gave to the fear from Republicans primarily and said, we won't bring these people to the U.S. and put them through our own federal court system, which has proven that it can charge very uh, extremely violent men and women and put them in maximum security prisons successfully. So uh, they uh, the, the, this is you know happening and yeah, uh, what, what you're saying, I get your point about what technology did, but I think the zeal that comes from our government exists whether the technology is there or not. Well, tell me, many years later now, Assange is still in prison. We don't know what's going to happen. Manning's free. Snowden is in Russia. What is the status today of media? Because as a journalist, I was just telling someone I'm working on another story related to female mass murders. And I said, one of the things I hate most about my job is having to reach out to people who've not lost children, but they might still be traumatized by that event five years ago. And I said, it's very hard to get information today. I find myself struggling more today than 10 years ago to get press offices of even private corporations to answer me. It seems that the burden to respond to media requests has gone way down for both public and private agencies. And it seems that what Julian Assange has created in the way of opening the possibility for having future drop boxes, for having future whistleblowers, that that has scared off a large contingent of people who might otherwise have participated in that among many issues I couldn't even list for you because I don't know what they would be. Yeah, the issue is that there's the lowest level of trust in media institutions, I think, in the history of the United States. And we all we all feel it. We all see some aspect. And even I, as somebody who's a media professional and like, you know, you're doing regular work as well. We all have our own criticisms of what colleagues do in the press and we see what we consider to be failures. We see acts of malpractice. Uh, we'll see some, occasionally people will do something and we'll, we'll think, wow, that's incredible. Great work. Really good. And then they get crushed for trying to produce really sophisticated and important investigative journalism. Um, you could spend hours upon hours, days, months, years, doing this major data journalism project, you release it. And then in a week it's gone and nobody pays attention. And you did all, you did all of this forensic work, trying to document something could be civilian deaths, could be the amount of drone strikes, could be the flow of drugs, weapons, arms trafficking, whatever it is, it comes 
and it goes because it doesn't fit in to the news cycle. So you have the lowest amount of trust too, because as I was alluding to, you go people who are peddling lies, you have, um, I think, more of a recognition than ever that those who are in elite positions in, uh, you could call it the legacy media, I call it the prestige media in my book, those people who act as gatekeepers, who, you know, frankly, wouldn't want to sit with us if we were at a dinner that was celebrating freedom of the press. They would want to be off on their own, talking to their own click of individuals. And they, uh, you know, they, they themselves are more concerned about maintaining their social status, having their access to the halls of power. Uh, they'll, when they get a scoop, when they get a story, and this is why they were embarrassed by WikiLeaks. They don't always publish. They call the people who run those agencies first and they say, is there something to this? I'm hearing that you are running a group of individuals who are involved in the mass killing of people in the countryside of Iraq. Is is that true? And uh, they'll say, oh, uh, you know, it it was a few bad apples, but we've dealt with it and you don't need to look into it or something like that. And they might say, yeah, okay. Or they might say, well, yes, it's true. But if you expose that now, lives are going to be endangered. So you should wait because, and then they'll give them some kind of explanation. And then usually the journalist says, okay, um, all right, well, we got to look into this. I've got to cover it, but I'll wait like three or four months and you can do what you have to do. So then there's an amount of cover up that, enters the equation and that's that's the way journalism is practiced and i think that people don't like it and it's it's been exposed and people are less willing um so you've got the public i'm talking about the public being alienated but then you're talking about too in addition to that the fact that there are people you call in press offices who don't want to respond, who don't want to give official statements. And so then there's also this resentment of, of no longer believing that they should have to be held accountable by the press. You know, it used to be that there was that you could be part of this fourth estate and you could do your job. But but now there are so many different methods that they can use to push you away and to help them not be held responsible for what they're doing in offices. Yeah, that pretty much sums that up. It's increasingly bizarre to me how the media is both on the one hand, we're seeing so much of major media, legacy media, what, whatever, not accounting for abuses of power and spitting narratives we saw this and we're seeing this now with the Twitter files and some of the excellent reporting by Taibbi and many other journalists as to the hoodwinking that went on, but it went on under the nose of many major media outlets that allowed it to, who parroted words, who allowed for ideology to take the front seat, not, not facts. And so reading your book, it just reminded me as to what went wrong and how it went wrong, but it's not fixed yet. And I think we're a long way from having this fixed. 
the way that media should be about fact collecting and then fact disseminating rather than it seems and I'm sure you've noticed this I have over the past uh, 20 years our media has gone from being mostly article fact-based or allegedly fact-based to op-eds. It seems like there's more op-ed and more opinion pieces than actual coverage. Yeah, it is true. It's easier because uh, to do investigative reporting takes time and you can't always write an article every day, but the pressures of turning a profit mean that a lot of these media organizations work like content mills um, or when you are, say, for example, uh, let's take people who are doing YouTube video production or cable. What they're doing is basically cable news tell, uh, cable news production on steroids. And this pressure to post, I don't know, three or four videos a day or to do a live stream every day means that you're not really doing serious work, in my opinion. You're riffing. You are reacting you are watching bad examples of news or journalism and you're getting your audience perhaps rightfully outraged, uh, but you're not reporting on stories and uh, you're not necessarily bringing up anything new that is fresh for your audience because to do so would take work. It would mean taking a day off and not having a live stream. And so I, I sort of resist this culture now of where people feel like they have to produce so much in which the value of it is so small. I mean, when there are so many people who are doing work every day that they post that is there's no reason for us to watch it a week or two weeks later. It's lost its value because it was about a fleeting moment in a news cycle in which nobody cares about anymore um and then you know on top of that uh the the fact is that people who you know churn out this information all the time are trying to sweep us up into partisan battles they're pandering to tribalism and you have to deal with that when you're working like so the way I approach my journalism is very issues-based. I don't care about what the Democrats are saying today or what the Republicans are saying or how it's going to benefit Joe Biden or how it's going to benefit Donald Trump or what does it mean for Ron DeSantis or what does it mean for Bernie Sanders or whatever you're talking about. What I care about is making sure that people understand an issue, a new story, understand what's happening with an individual. Why is this unjust? Why should we be paying attention? What's at stake? What could be lost if we allow something to unfold? And you know what you'll see in our media, primarily like cable news, television, uh, uh, or you, you see in, I guess, print, New York Times or Washington Post, is this thing of like, well, I don't know if we should prosecute if we prosecute there's going to be outrage and division and it might pull the country apart at the seams there's a well then what kind of rule of law do we have if people who commit crimes 
war crimes. This is what happened with Bush and Cheney when it came to impeachment. Oh, we can't hold them accountable for the Iraq war. It will create so much division. Well, okay, well, then what you mean is that, and also we can't prosecute people in the CIA who are involved in torture. We could only study it. We could only have the Senate study it. And and even that, like, I don't know, we can't even have the Senate study it without the CIA putting out their own minority report about why they don't think they really engaged in torture. And so uh, there's, there's no accountability for that. So then that means that all of this is essentially decriminalized. So now you could torture. Uh, now you could um, target people and kill them. Now you could engage in massacres and get away with it. And so that's that's one of the like biggest obstacles is that we don't see issues when we do our reporting. What we see is, ooh, how's that going to help Republicans? How's that going to help Democrats? Or wait, or or even more, it can get more cynical. The the other uh, another angle is, ooh, well, why does it matter? Why should I cover this? Because they're never going to do anything about it. So like you'll get people who don't want to engage with the work that you've done because the uh, Democrats are never going to do anything to fix it. Republicans are never going to do anything to fix it. Biden won't fix it. Donald Trump will try, but people around him will stop him or Donald Trump will get bored with it and move on and he won't do anything to fix it. So then you're just stuck because you care about a certain set of issues and people have this belief, which I understand where it's coming from. It's not entirely misplaced, but they believe that it's just not going to amount to much. So they'd rather, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be crude here and say that they'd rather have their bread and circuses instead of your serious investigative journalism. Thank you.